0: Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Classroom Conversations, the platform for Georgia's teachers. This podcast series presents teacher guests to a teacher audience for the benefit of enriching your instructional strategies. Classroom Conversations is produced by Georgia Public Broadcasting here at GPB's Talk Studio in Atlanta, and it's brought to you by the Georgia Department of Education. I'm your host, Ashley Mingwasser. Great to be here. Let me preview today's teacher feature. You guys, I am seriously fangirling right now. She's here, the chosen one, the pride of Georgia educators, the celeb of classroom celebs, flexing for Georgia public education. Georgia's 2022 Teacher of the Year, Sherry Dennis. Sherry is an English as a Second Language or ESOL teacher at Hess K-8 School in Savannah, Chatham County Public Schools, and she's here to talk about her ESOL experiences today. In addition to being Georgia's top teacher, Sherry is a degree holder from all four of these little-known institutions, Georgetown, Stanford, Armstrong Atlantic State, and Mercer. Have you heard of them? There are about 140,000 ESOL students in Georgia, and as Sherry says, it's really important to make sure we can meet their needs. Once you hear her story, you're going to be proud to have her represent Georgia across the state and the nation. Welcome to the podcast, Sherry Dennis. Thank you so much for having me. How'd I really you feel appreciate about it. that intro. I saw your face turning a little red over there. <laughs> yeah, that was um, <laughs> that was a bit much, but thank you. <laughs> Never enough, in my opinion. We're so excited to have you here. It feels like a celebrity guest for sure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. you came all the way from Savannah?
1: Yes. um, I drove all the way up here from Savannah. It's great to be up here in Atlanta visiting with everyone and um, just
0: to be able to be here to speak with you today. We're so excited. Great to have you in the A, Sherry. Where, I got to just start at how you found out this great news. Where were you when you found out that you were named Teacher of the Year?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, so normally they have a gala for announcing Teacher of the Year. And, um... They were not able to have that because of COVID, uh, so they weren't able to bring all the district teachers of the year together in order to, to make that announcement and have that celebration. So uh, what they did was they did it virtually, and we had a celebration with various um, professional development sessions and speakers, and then um, at the end of the evening or the, of the second day, they did an announcement over over Zoom. So you and were so on I, Zoom. Yes, I was on Zoom, and I was sitting in my dining room with my Dad and my son and my dad's girlfriend and we were just all sitting there watching it on the computer. So it was definitely uh, different than a gala, but nonetheless, it was it was special to be able to be with them. So
0: and tell us who was lurking outside.
1: Um, so lurking outside, unbeknownst to me, was um, our school superintendent, Dr. Ann Levett, along with Stacy Jennings, who is the director of communications for Savannah-Chatham County Public Schools, and Matt Jones, who is the chief of staff at the Georgia Department of Education. They were hiding out in my yard for quite a while while this <laughs> the whole ceremony was going on. So it was kind
0: of wild. in your bushes. And then your dog, was it your dog who tipped you off?
1: Yes, my dogs tipped me off. I had, well, but even then I didn't put it together. You know, we were watching this, um, you know, the events of the evening and the ceremony and, and literally right when they were an- about to announce who the Georgia teacher of the year was, my dogs, who had been perfectly silent the whole night, decided to start to go crazy. And I was like, I I can't believe they're doing this. Like, right now, right when they're about to say (laughs) it. In the middle of the
0: big moment. In the
1: middle of it. And it turned out it was because they saw... Dr. LeVette and and uh, Mr. Jones and and uh, Ms. Jennings start to come across my yard, uh, unbeknownst to me, and I didn't even notice it. So uh, yes, they were the welcome committee, my dogs.
0: <laughs> and so. they were just there to congratulate you, which is so special. And yes. your fiancé did something special that day. Tell y- us that story. Yes, he did. So he was too nervous to stay for the
1: whole thing. Love um, that. Yes. <laughs> Anyone who knows him, he knows he's a ball of energy and he was a nervous wreck. So he decided to go to the Savannah Bananas game that evening. The Savannah Bananas is a, is a baseball team in Savannah. It's not minor league, but it's a college uh, college league team where college players from different schools come together and get to play in a league when they're in their off season. So he went to the Savannah Bananas game and he was watching it on his phone the entire time during the game. Aww. And he came racing home and he grabbed me right after doctor LeVette and and uh, and Matt and, and Stacy left and they and he he we raced to the ballpark and he had them uh take me out onto the field and on announce the mound. on the mound and announce that I was named Georgia Teacher of the Year in about, I don't know, maybe Several thousand people started screaming, so it was it was kind of wild. <laughs> oh my gosh,
0: people with banana foam fingers and things like that. Oh yes, the Savannah savannians went banana. Yes, it could was pretty you cool. have had a better, more exciting crew? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's pretty cool. That's pretty much the pinnacle. Well, into your career as a teacher, when and why did you start teaching here in Georgia? Um, so I started teaching
1: in Georgia in 2010 after I got my degree at Armstrong Atlantic State um, when I was in college, I had studied Japanese and I wanted to become a language teacher. This was as an undergraduate, continued my studies in graduate school. And then when I tried to find a job in teaching for Japanese, uh, that didn't quite come together because those are pretty scarce positions. So I pivoted and I ended up having this career in advertising for several years. Um, And when my son was in kindergarten, um, I wasn't working at the time, but I wanted to go back to work. And I was like, wait a minute, I wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so it was my moment to get back in. And um, I was I, we had moved to Savannah to be near my family at the time. And so I just went back and hopped right in. So. You sure
0: did. But mm-hmm. you had an advertising career on the West Coast.
1: Yes. So my advertising career, so I started in, um, so like I said, I couldn't find a job in Japanese in teaching. And so... I was like, what am I going to do with this degree? And so I ended up uh, exploring different industries. What do I want to do with this? And on the West Coast, there are a lot of Japanese corporations and their advertising agencies are close by. And I thought, well, hmm, why don't I try advertising? And I ended up landing at an agency called Sachi & Sachi, which handles the Toyota account, the national Toyota advertising campaign, and also... The account director there is the worldwide account director because the agency handles the uh, Toyota advertising in about 25 different countries. So that was kind of my entree with a Japanese company at an ad agency, and then it just became a career in advertising. So
0: And eventually, like you said, circled back to your calling, which you feel is teaching. What do you love about teaching?
1: Um, well, what I love about teaching, I mean, quite simply, it's just all about making a difference and just really helping my students Um, just come into their own and and realize their potential as individuals. Um, I enjoy giving them that safe space where they can become independent thinkers, creative thinkers, and also just contributive members to society. I, I like being able to kind of make that simultaneous impact in the larger sense, um, because really, you know, I mean, an, an educated society is a thoughtful and collaborative mm-hmm. and a more communi- communicative society. And so I just I love how teaching has that individual impact, but also that larger impact. So.
0: And you were able to parlay your love of languages into your career. I'm sure that led you to the ESOL arena. So let's start our exploration by holding maybe some common approaches to ESOL education up to the light. We'll take a closer examination here. We do know that the research supports an asset-based approach. Uh, instead of a deficit-based approach. With that in mind, Sherry, what are some common approaches to teaching English learners that you'd like to just go ahead and bust today? Right. Yes. It is
1: incredibly important to have that asset-based mindset where where we are really taking advantage of what our students are bringing to the table as opposed to having a deficit mindset where we're thinking about what our students are lacking or what their shortcomings might be. And um, that's really, it's really the case with all of our students, but it's definitely something that we need to think about when it comes to ESOL students. So just kind of some of the things that um, I really uh, want people to think about when they're when they're working with ESOL students. Um, I guess this, first of all, that every ESOL student um, isn't isn't an immigrant or doesn't necessarily come from the same background or cultural cultural background or socioeconomic status. Um, we can't group our ESOL students collectively. Mm. Um, it, it's not a catch-all, and we need to demonstrate that we have an appreciation for their for their individuality and. Um, on the surface, this is just so obvious, but in reality, ESOL students aren't really treated that way. So um, especially in a school where you'll have a large number of ESOL students who speak the same language, like if you have a lot of students who speak Spanish in your school, um, some people might assume, oh, well, because they all speak Spanish, they're all the same, but they're not. Some might come from Mexico and some come from El Salvador, and the culture of those those countries are very different. And then also, um, just because... Um, they have uh, not only do they have these very different backgrounds, but they have very different command of English Mm -hmm. and also a different command of their primary language. So uh, the immigrants, an immigrant student from El Salvador might not know any English, um, while the student whose family is originally from Mexico, they might have a command of English in terms of interpersonal language, but just not academic language. Or even a student um, who's born in the United States, but has their families from another country, um, they might not even be fluent in their primary language. Uh. And so there are so many things that uh, we need to look at as teachers to appreciate their individuality and not kind of group them together collectively so that we can differentiate and build those meaningful relationships. Yeah,
0: you're you're separating, you told me this before, which I thought was really interesting, that you're separating language proficiency with their intelligence. You can't use that as an indicator. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, again, on the surface, it's something that we know that's really obvious, that someone's language proficiency is not a measure of their intelligence. Mm-hmm. So if I move to China and i don't speak a word of chinese it's not a measure <laughs> of my intelligence right so right. it's a me- it's just merely a measure of my fr- proficiencies but unfortunately again sometimes our esol students are treated that way Um, and uh, it it is true that some of our ESOL students come to us without even had any schooling, um, maybe in their native country if they're coming to us as immigrants, but even those students do come to us with perspectives and experiences and knowledge that we can build on, and it's really important for us to build on that with our students um, and, and take advantage, again, it's from that asset asset um, perspective, what can they do? And when their teachers believe in what they can do, then those students can really um, have confidence and engage in the classroom.
0: So... Wonderful. And how do teachers build relationships and build bridges with these students as individuals? What do you recommend? Um, well, I think obviously the foundation
1: for working with our ESOL students is building those relationships. Um, and because we want them to have confidence in who they are when they are stepping into an environment that that might be unfamiliar to them or it might be intimidating for them. And and teachers need to really approach our ESOL students in a non-judgmental way, and our personal perspectives on culture impact our ability to to serve those ESOL students effectively. So, um, building the relationships is really, really important for our students. They want to feel welcome. They want to feel accepted. And it's not just about building the relationships with the students. It's about building relationships with their families as well. Um, mm-hmm. So that we can help their help families help their students be successful. And really, as an ESOL student, those relationships um are so important. you're You're an advocate is really what you are in so many ways, yes. So.
0: And you mentioned parents, huge linchpin, a mm-hmm. key part of their success. How do you build e l parents capacity? to actively engage in their children's edu- education. Right, it's really about, um, it's about
1: open lines of communication. And um, and that's not something that should just be done by ESOL teachers, it's something that can be done by classroom teachers as well. It's important for classroom teachers to do it because ESOL teachers, we don't have these students in our classroom the majority of the time. They we, at least at my school, we pull them out um, during resource time and so the majority of the time the students are in their in with their classroom teachers so it's important for classroom teachers to be building these relationships with parents as well and we learned a lot about that during the pandemic, um, looking again at my school specifically, we have over 200 ESOL students at our school. That makes up about 20 percent of our ESOL population. And especially at the beginning when not all of our students were connected with devices and Wi-Fi and, and their parents didn't uh, did, struggled with being able to help them with that, it was really important for us to do that. So, again, it was taking advantage of that technology. And you don't need to know how to speak the language of your pair of the students or the parents sometimes it's it's really it's about making that effort the families are just so appreciative to have people who reach out so Using Google Translate or using Say Hi to trans- translate things very simply for families. Um, that's just the beginning, and um, and a lot of the parents. It's really about um, it's about reaching out because sometimes mm. they don't understand the communication protocols, or they might be from a culture where that parent teacher relationship is very different. So um, we we need to just show that effort, and they're just so appreciative because they just they want to help their students and just model as much. that you
0: want them involved, right. right?
1: Exactly. It's about modeling that we want them involved. You so, want them involved, yeah. You talked
0: about welcoming them into the building as well In addition mm-hmm. to that communication that you talked about That mm-hmm. maybe there might be family engagement events That they could be invited to yes. Tell me about that Yes, yeah, so family engagement is a really important part of what we do Um
1: really trying to make the parents not just you know go out to them through communication, like you said, but it's bringing them in. It's about um, making sure that they feel like they're part of a community. So we, we try to hold um, community engagements event, events at least quarterly at our school in order to make them feel involved. So, for example, at the beginning of the year, we'll have a specific ESOL open house. Um, Or then during the year, we'll have meetings for our ESOL families that have both kind of academic and practical components to them. So one night it might be we talk to them about what the ESOL program is, and then we'll talk to them about how they could support reading at home. Or another night we'll show them how to register their kids for pre-K and kindergarten because they're struggling with using the portal. And then we'll have um there was an issue we had in our neighborhood where several of our families were having fires in their homes. And so we we had people from the fire department come and talk about how they could get free smoke detectors. Wow. So yeah, that was a really great program. so it's it's a matter of connecting them in so many ways and making them really feel like they're part of the community. so
0: Well, you mentioned this earlier, you alluded to it, that students are entering your classrooms with funds of knowledge. I want to define this a little bit. That is knowledge perspectives, even skills that may derive from their communities, their cultural practices, which you spoke about, their home life, even their primary language being a fund of knowledge, right? Right. So how do you capitalize on students' innate funds of knowledge in the classroom, and use that right. Yeah, we we always talk about our students'
1: background knowledge, and lots of times we think about that. Um, oftentimes, what what we mean is their, is their academic background, but really, to your point, it does have to do with what are they bringing to the to the table to the classroom personally from their culture, from their experiences, from their language, and there are kind of simple ways in which you can tap into students' funds of knowledge. And then there are also um, some just some more expansive ways. So simple ways would just be, um, you know, when it's just having the regular conversations with your with your students. These can be the Monday morning conversation about, you know, how was your weekend? It can also be about making text to self connections when you're reading a book, so that the student can bring themselves into the reading experience uh, when you're reading a book together in the class. Some more expansive ways would be. Examples would be um, during Hispanic uh, Heritage Month, um, you're reading stories about Hispanic heroes, or you're allowing students to write about their home countries and their cultures, and and you're building their academic skill, but also tapping into their own personal lo- personal knowledge and and acknowledging the importance of who they are and where they come from,
0: bringing that to bear in the classroom. Yes, which is inviting them in, much right. like you want to do with parents. Exactly, like. exactly. In 12 years of teaching, Sherry, I'm sure you have. So so many, but we'd love to hear an ESOL success story or two where you've just seen really great progress with one of your English learners. Um,
1: well, I have to be honest. Um, I don't I don't necessarily have a story about a single child. Um, you know, I I kind of feel like I, I've had success with my ESOL students because it's an approach that I take with them. Um, and again, it goes back to building that relationship. And when my students walk into into the room, um I let them know that they are in a safe space. Um, I completely embrace them for who they are and where they are, um, and whether that's personally or academically, and I don't want to make them feel like they have to be anybody but themselves. Um, So when students are acquiring another language, uh, one of the first stages can be a quiet period when they won't speak at all. Wow. Yeah, it's quite remarkable, but it's it's not something that teachers should be daunted by. It is it is part of the natural process of language acquisition. What do you do? It's about patience and embracing that child exactly where they are and building the relationship so that they feel like they're in a safe space. I step back and just give them this, their space to show what they know in their own time. And I build a I build a trusting relationship. And then all of a sudden, it's like one day, like, bam, it just comes pouring they out change. of them. Or they, yeah, they just, they start speaking or they start writing or they start reading. And you're just like... Wow! (laughs) The fire ignited. The fire ignited, or just they just finally settled into it, and it's just it's just about the relationships that that I create with them. Is I think really um, that I just I really enjoy that, and I feel like that's. Those are those are my stories. So. You're, you're
0: describing that you're not pushing them out of their comfort zone. You're you're embracing them where they are, and you're kind of letting them step up to the table. To go back to your China example, I've been to China twice and worked on a documentary, and that was us. You know, <laughs> we didn't speak a lick of Mandarin or Cantonese wherever we were. So when anybody is in unfamiliar territory, you have to wait till somebody acclimates a little bit.
1: Right. Exactly. And it's not that I don't um, have any expectations for them, or or I lower or I lower the bar for them because but. At the same time, I want to give them, I, I give them that space to to
0: just kind of to get into the comfort zone, and that's when they'll step up when they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. Very good point. How are you navigating changes that the pandemic brought? Right,
1: I think um, I think different teachers are seeing different things depending on how their school or their district approached everything. Um, you know, everyone was virtual from March until May of of 2020. But the big difference is what happened from 2020 to 21, right? So some schools were, some schools went back in person. Some schools were all virtual. Some schools kind of did a hybrid. And then you've got the differing degrees to which parents were able to support their students, whether it was because of things like language barriers with our ESOL students, or because parents had to go back to work and things like that. And um, that impacted the degree to which, um, students were or weren't behind despite the efforts of you know of our teachers and everything. So, um, I'm in a k eight school. And I think that we have seen the effects of the pandemic across all all of the grade levels. Um, in the most in the most general sense, I think the greatest impact kind of academically and socially has been in what I call those transitional grades. Mm-hmm. So in the first graders who never came to school for kindergarten, oh. or the seventh graders who never experienced that first year of middle school, you know, because kindergarten and sixth grade are kind of like, you're not just learning that new content, you're learning kind of a new way of life. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so uh, I think that's been challenging. And I think across all grade levels, um, s- students have struggled socially um, compared to our students in prior years. And really, I think what teachers have done, how what they're doing to navigate this is is quite simply to just meet the students where they are there was so much pressure at the beginning of you know we've got to fill the gaps we've got to catch them up and everything and i think that um what at students teachers were very very overwhelmed by that but kind of the copy room conversations that i'm having now is is that teachers have almost embraced the embrace the gaps is too strong but i think that what they're saying is they saw those lags at the beginning of the year and it was it was overwhelming for them but now But most of the conversations now are about the progress. Mm. It's about, okay, look, I know that my first graders aren't necessarily where my first graders traditionally are, but goodness, they have made progress and they are loving being here and they are working hard and we are having success. And it's so nice to hear that turn in the turn in the voices of teachers. I mean, I think teachers are teachers are tired and teachers have been working hard. Yes. But I think that those are the, the kind of the 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 rewards that are coming out of it for teachers.
0: Right, and teachers are regaining power in the overcoming process that they're going through right? with right, students. In that sense. So, your, your observational powers are still on fleek, Sherry. You know, <laughs> you're not Teacher of the Year for no reason. But how are you assessing student progress then, given all this, across the different modes of communication throughout the school year? Right. So, as you mentioned, um, we do give an assessment to all English, if you're talking about the assessment
1: of students, um, like ESOL students. Um, we do give the Access Test of English Proficiency to all students in the state of Georgia once a year, and that assesses them on their reading, writing, listening, and speaking. So that's our kind of primary baseline for all of our, for all of our ESOL students. But uh, just kind of other things that we do, we really work with our homeroom teachers um, to to kind of cull data from them. There are various district benchmarks in my district. We use MAP testing Um, in my school. We'll use um, writing scrimmages to see how students are doing with their writing. Um, It's just kind of you know curriculum tools that teachers are using. We're able to glean um, quantitative information about our students from that and let that inform our instruction. But also. and it just kind of gives us insight into knowledge. Um, another tool that we use is ESOL teachers. The, com- the the organization that writes the access test for English proficiency, which is called WIDA, they also provide us with rubrics that we can use for um, speaking, for analyzing speaking and writing tasks, and that helps us assess. Um, as a ESOL elementary teacher, I don't give grades, but qualitative observation is a huge part of, of what I do. And as I, um, as I cycle through materials when I'm teaching students, um, I'm, I'm always making sure to scaffold and reuse and scaffold and reuse so that I can see if they've absorbed. What I've taught And then they're able To to continually reapply it And I notice Whether or not I've got to uh, reteach Or whether we can move on So
0: I got you So you have Quantitative and qualitative Measures you can use That keep your finger On the pulse of progress Right Okay great Are there any techniques Or exercises that you use With your EL students That you'd like to share With our audience of educators We (laughs) want to know All your tricks Sherry (laughs) I hope they're not all proprietary
1: Oh no No they're not proprietary Um Yes, no when I find good good tricks, I pirate, so I'm not shy um, <laughs> so um I think that so you know there are a variety of techniques that i that I really like to use. I think the basis for all of them is is differentiation because um that's really the key to supporting e s o l students and and recognizing their unique background and realizing that they learn differently um, but I think the 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 other thing that I really keep in mind in all of the techniques that I use is whether I'm working on basic interpersonal skills, which is what we call BICs. So that's basically kind of the social language and whether we're talking about their cognitive, um, their cognitive academic language. So um, that's kind of the academic language for things that are cognitively more demanding. So I will. When I pick out my techniques, I'm thinking about differentiation and I'm thinking about is this interpersonal skill or is this academic language? So um, I think one of the one of my favorite techniques is what we call picture word induction model. So I'm already intrigued. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm not getting too technical, but to kind of dive specifically. So. Picture word induction model is a is a vocabulary strategy that that you that we can use, and um, it's it's amazing how far you can kind of take one picture based on your your uh, student's skill. Um, you can use. Um, and it's also what I like about it is it's a very low prep strategy. So you can use one picture to engage all four domains of language development. So whether it's reading, writing, listening, or speaking, you can have you can share a picture that provokes thought and and um, develop vocabulary and come up with a vocabulary list and have students um, chorally read those words together. You can have them write sentences about it. You can ask them questions about it, or they can make up questions about it. Um, you can also have them brainstorm titles for the Pictures. So that's uh, that's one strategy that I really like to use. Something visual that they can relate to. Um, another strategy is a is a writing strategy. I like to use sentence frames and, and sentence um, starters. And lots of times people think of those as something for really young grades, you know, kind of like that fill in the blank, finish I know. the sentence, you got the right? You the first
0: few words, but you have to finish the e- rest.
1: Exactly, exactly. But really kind of our language has so many patterns to it. And sometimes that we don't even realize it, especially academic language. So if you're talking about comparing and contrasting something, you know, you, we have patterns, you know, A and B are similar because or a is different from B. So lots of times when we're um, teaching various academic skills, we can find those sentence frames and structures um, and we can use those with our ESOL students to help them build their language skills and build syntactic features that, um, that they may not have already and that can be used with academic language. Um, and then another one that I like to use is I also like to use um, thematic units. Um, because they're a great opportunity, again, to tap into the four different domains, um, but then also be cross-curricular with it. So, you know, if I'm teaching about pollution, I can pull in science and reading and math and writing all at once, and I can explore it in a very broad way. I can differentiate it for the different students in my in my room. Um, if they're writing, they can write on different levels. If their vocabulary is on different levels, we can dig to the level to which they're they're um, comfortable. So um, those are three strategies that I really like to use with my students. Tip
0: of the iceberg. <laughs> you are such an innovator, Sherry. Make oh, us so proud. Oh, oh, I don't know if I'm an innovator, but um, I've I've had some great
1: support along the way. Uh, so. I've 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 appreciated all the training that I've gotten from people. So Excellent.
0: Well, thank you for being with us today. Could you sure. just leave an autograph, please, oh, sh- for the <laughs> annals of this show? We're going to have to get all of our Teachers of the Year for coming years on the show, but you'll always be our first, Sherry. <laughs> Is there anything else you want anybody to know about teaching ESOL in our schools? Um, I would just, uh, again, I mean, I've, I've already
1: said it, but build the relationships with these students and build relationships with your ESOL families um, and um, that—that's where it all starts. That's Beautiful. where ESOL
0: starts. And honor those funds of knowledge. Yes, honor the funds of knowledge. They very will good. go very far. Okay, thank you, Sherry. To all of our educators listening, ESOL and all, remember this: You're a great teacher. Bye bye. Hope you've enjoyed season one of Classroom Conversations. We have plans to keep the momentum going with season two, so if you have a classroom conversation you'd like to hear, we want to know about it. Email us at education at gpb.org.